If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1, 1 through 4. I want to read a little passage, dive in, tell you where we're going between now and Christmas, and uh, do a little teaching this morning. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. Father, we ask right now that you would bless the unfolding of your word in our hearts this morning. That as we study the relationship of a father and a son, that you would weave us into the story. In Jesus' name, amen. People talk about their own kids differently than they talk about anybody else's kids, right? Because there's a pride element there and there's an understanding element there. There are times as a parent, you see in your child what nobody else sees and probably wouldn't believe, but you see it in them and you call it out. I'm always interested in how God directed people through the Holy Spirit to speak about his son. What were the things that God wanted you to know about his son? God is directing people by the Holy Spirit through scripture to write about him and he writes about him with these really lofty terms. In the beginning was the word. Like he was there from the start. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. I'm not a big fan of of the King James Version, but the King James Version of this is amazing. It says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. Jesus, the son of God, is God's final word. It's what he says. Almost everybody going into Christmas has strong feelings about how Christmas should be observed. Those of you who are married know you married with your Christmas traditions into someone else's Christmas traditions and you had to kind of find a middle ground there, right? When we were married, uh, we discovered that my family always opened gifts on Christmas Eve. Kelsey's family opened gifts on Christmas Day. We compromised, we opened gifts on Christmas Day. That was, that's where we landed on that, okay? Some of you have been a part of those compromises and I've been on the other end of those compromises as well. But everybody going into Christmas has a sense of tradition and just a little bit of pastoral vulnerability here. As a pastor, you realize that you are preaching through Christmas in comparison to everyone else's ghost of Christmas past. Because everybody has some understanding of what Christmas at their church should look like. And you just figure out every Christmas, all right, who are we going to disappoint? Because it's going to be somebody. Steve Hickey has this amazing story about preaching Christmas after Christmas after Christmas and trying to be creative and he did something a little bit unconventional on one Christmas and somebody caught him in the foyer under no circumstances when somebody catches you in the foyer is it good 
And she was furious about his Christmas message. And she literally stomped her foot and put her finger in his face. You ruined my Christmas. So with that as a backdrop, let's start our Christmas series, shall we? And while I don't hope to ruin anybody's Christmas, I think you've been around long enough to know I look at things at a bit of a 90 degree angle and Christmas is not any different. We are in the middle of a series called Picture This. We're going to put, press pause on that. We'll re resume that in January. And we're going to take a couple of weeks and talk about Christmas, but we're going to talk about some scenes from Christmas. So there is a bit of a picture aspect to it. And then on Christmas Eve, after having looked at Christmas from a couple of different angles, we're going to gather and we're just going to say, thank you, God, for sending your son. So we look forward to that. Three different scenes as we uh, look at Christmas. Next week, we're going to talk about the scene of promise and expectation. We think of Christmas largely in relation to fulfillment of expectation. But there is a lot of expecting and want baked into the Christmas story. Christmas is the fulfillment of the desire of every human heart and what the prophet Haggai calls the desire of the nations. I don't know if you watch the news, but uh, Emmanuel Macron from France is visiting. Maybe he's gone home now. I don't know. He didn't call when he left. But he, he was visiting this week in the United States, and they did a big state dinner. And I'm just, those things are always interesting to me. It's like, what do you talk about at those things? What are the nation's desires? What do they want from one another? What they probably didn't talk about, but what according to Haggai says, all of the nations want is Jesus. There is a very real value to contentment. But sometimes what we call contentment is actually the suppressing of godly desires. And we have, and nations have, a godly desire for Jesus. It is not ungodly to want. And in the Christmas story, there are some individuals who have great desire and great hunger. We'll talk about that next week, promise and expectation. The week after that, we're going to talk about the idea of Christmas, the coming of Jesus, the now and the not yet. If you're familiar with that phrase, it was uh, popularized by the theologian George Ladd. Also, John Wimber used it a lot. It was the idea that the kingdom of God is here, but yet it is coming. And you see it even through the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is, what do you say? It's at hand. It's here. You got it. Other times he's teaching, he said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. But then he teaches them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray for the kingdom to come. Wait, you said it was, in, it was at hand. He said it was within me. And then he describes the kingdom where he says the first shall be the last, the greatest is the serving. Like, we don't see that yet. So the kingdom is here, but yet it is coming. His first coming was a pivotal point in the God-man relationship, Christmas. It was a pivotal point, but it was not the pinnacle of the God-man relationship. And that is coming with his second coming. So yes, in Christmas, we're going to talk about the return of Jesus in a Christmas series. So you're like, well, I, I came from a tradition that was mostly like smells and bells and stuff like that. Bring your own smells and bells. We'll let you use them. But we're going to talk about Jesus coming back in light of the Christmas story. But today, a different scene that strangely coincides with the last message that I taught. Jeff taught last week, but last, 
Uh, two weeks ago, we taught through Malachi, and we talked about Malachi at the end of Malachi, where he says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction or a, a curse. That is at the end of the book of Malachi. If you look at your Bible, you hit Malachi, and what happens? It's the New Testament. Yeah, it's just a couple of pages, but it's 400 years. The Lord speaks through Malachi and never says another word prophetically to them that is worth writing down for 400 years. Imagine the little prophet groups. Because when it, when it ended, nobody knew. Okay, it's not like he told them. But the little prophet study groups get together. Anybody have a dream? No. Anybody got a word? No. It's like 400 years of bad devotions. You know, where you're just doing it for the strength of doing it. For 400 years, and then after 400 years, he speaks. Did your dad ever get really quiet? When your dad was really quiet, what he was probably saying to you is, have you done the last thing I told you? In Psalm 62, there's this phrase that's repeated twice. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Twice. For God alone, my soul waits. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And the psalmist says it at the top of the chapter, and he repeats it midway through the chapter. The whole chapter is only 12 verses. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm still here, God. I'm still waiting. What are you saying? And then he closes that chapter, not with a fresh word or a new response from God, by circling back to something God has said. Psalm 69, 11, and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. When God is silent, the wisest thing we could do is go back to the last thing that he said. So for 400 years after Malachi, nothing. Just quiet. He calls them to love their children. Says, fathers, love your children. Children, love your fathers. And after 400 years... Because he is a perfect father and he has expectations, but he never calls us to expectations that he does not demonstrate to us, after 400 years, he starts to speak. Matthew 1.1, this is the story of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. After 400 years of saying, fathers, love your children, children, love your fathers, he begins to speak about his son. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Luke 1.30, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. The God who tells fathers that as the end of the age appears, they must love their children with a purity that they can never muster on their own, and that the children must turn to their fathers with a purity they can never muster on their own, that father starts speaking again 400 years later about his son and his son's relationship with him. Through the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus, God shows us a picture of what it means for a father to love a son and a son to love his father. The Bible in this passage here is the best parenting book we can find. But don't look to the humans for examples because even the heroes of the faith at times were bad parents. But... God himself, the perfect father, speaks of his son. Now, some of you did not get this picture of a loving father growing up. And I realize even as I speak about this, some of you have no, no grid for this. 
The language of God as a father is hard for you because your earthly father was broken and his father before him was broken and his father before him was broken and because it was never dealt with, it just keeps rolling down through the generations. And maybe even you had the best father in the world, but because of the proximity, you saw him blow it at times. And at worst, you had a father who inherited generations of pain and couldn't do right, even if they wanted to, but because they'd never seen it done. Now, I'll just be honest, there are some topics that are, I avoid because they're hard to preach about. They're not the ones you would think. Okay, the ones you would think I seem to dive right into. But some of the, and I don't talk a lot about parenting. Because when you have a large family, people have weird ideas about your parenting. I've had a number of people tell me, you should write a book on parenting. No, I should read a book on parenting. Okay? Just because we're doing it large scale doesn't mean we have it figured out. I don't want to be the template. I want to do the best I can. But the template in Scripture of God the Father and Jesus the Son is like nothing else we'll find. How many of us are gripped with this idea, the hearts of the fathers turning to the children, hearts of the children turning to the fathers, and we say, we want that. that. Oh, I want that. But because of our experience, the one we've had as a child and the one we're living out, we've never really learned to be moms and dads or fathers and daughters. And Christmas, at the beginning, is the story of a good father who is not so much strict as he is proud. He's not so much a a taskmaster as he is an encourager and a supporter of his son. God is the epitome of a proud father. There's a passage in Luke that picks up where we left off where God sends an angel to describe to Mary what his son will be like. Keep in mind, nobody has seen God's son. If you've been around a while, you know not all babies are cute. That's that's just a fact. You all say, oh, what a... What a baby. That's a baby. I've seen a baby and that's one. But God is describing his son to someone who has never seen Jesus before. And he speaks through an angel directly to the expectant mother. And he says this, Luke 1, 32 and 33. He, don't read this dry. Read this like a, like a proud father. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He says to the woman who's going to bear this child, oh, he's going to be great. Is he going to be cute? Yeah, he'll be cute. But beyond cute, he's going to be great. How would you expect someone with this sort of introduction to arrive on the earth? Someone that the prophet Isaiah said the the government will rest upon his shoulders. If that person is going to be revealed, how do you think that person would arrive on the scene? You would think he would arrive with great fanfare. Bolander household has two vehicles. We have a shiny, beautiful Mazda with leather heated seats. It is nondescript. It, it uh, uh, It is comfortable. It arrives quietly. It's the vehicular equivalent of a submarine. You don't see it coming. You don't see it going, which is perfect for children because when you drop them off at their friend's house, the last thing they want is for anybody to recognize or acknowledge the vehicle. 
And then we have our other vehicle. A 15-year-old F-350 three-quarter ton super duty bone white homeschooler 15 passenger van. And whenever we go anywhere, before we leave, the kids ask, what are we driving? Because they want to know how we're arriving. Ain't nobody want to arrive in that big white van. It looks like the ice cream man is off duty when we pull up. But they want to arrive a certain way. When he describes Jesus here, you think, how is he going to arrive? God says Jesus will be called great among the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of the Father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Yet he arrives in a very different manner than you might expect him to, given his destiny. Born to what was an unwed mother. Not surrounded by family, but surrounded by animals. Literally born in a barn. You can imagine Jesus at 10. Forgets to shut the screen door. Joseph yells at him, were you born in a barn? Jesus is like, well, actually. He's like, oh, I forgot. Yeah, you were born in a barn. For those of you who are learning to be sons and daughters, how you arrive at your situation does not determine your destiny. Some of you arrived at this spot, and you're like, it wasn't pretty getting here. But it doesn't determine who you are. The Savior of the world arrived in the most meager of circumstances, but his father saw who he really was, and not just the place where people found him. And he spoke of his son in terms that would, of what he would become, not of what he appeared to be when he got there. Moms and dads, speak at least as much about what you see in your children than what you see them doing right now. Speak about who they are and call it out of them. Was Jesus the king of the universe when he was born? Yes, he was. Would anybody else have seen that? Nobody else would have seen it. And God spoke it over him. He didn't speak of Jesus in these glowing terms to build Jesus' self-esteem. Remember, Jesus was not wounded by his father. But I think there's a principle here of the necessity to declare what will be so that expectations are set among the people. Speak often and highly of your own children's future. It puts the world on notice that this child has a destiny, and we're going to talk about it. It is especially true of sons. Those of you that have sons, it's true of daughters as well, but sons specifically yearn to know if they have what it takes. In the last four or five years, I have disciplined myself, particularly with my older sons, over and over to speak to them. You know what? You have what it takes within you. I want them to know that their father thinks they have what it takes. And from the beginning, this perfect father who had his heart set for his son, even at the time of his humble arrival, prophesied greatness over his son's life. Jesus fulfilled every expectation of his father because his father's expectations were clearly set and they were set for good. For an earthly father's heart to be turned toward his son or his daughter, that father needs to follow the example of the perfect father and speak greatness over our children. And some of you who struggle with it, struggle with it because it was never spoken over you. And you don't know what the Lord thinks of you, and you surely can't say it over somebody else. Sons, fathers, men, women, the word of the Lord to you is this, that with Jesus within you, you have what it takes. 
Like, you really have what it takes to overcome, to be victorious, to live a long, faithful life, faithful to people and faithful to God. You are not lacking in the strength with Jesus within you. You may have never had anybody say that to you before. You may have lived with that question, do I have what it takes? I'm not your father, but I'm telling you, the father says over you, you have what it takes with Jesus within you. Now, we've talked a lot about this father-son relationship from the perspective of the father, what it means for a father's heart to be turned towards the children from the example of God talking about Jesus. But we actually know more about the Jesus and God relationship from the words of Jesus than we do from the words of God the Father. In the father-son relationship or the parent-child relationship, the father or the parent frames the experience, but the son or the daughter displays it. What I mean by that is you raise your kids how you raise them, and when the dust settles, they tell the story. (laughs) Horrifying, isn't it? The son testifies of the relationship he had with the father. He actually says, you can look at me and you can understand what God was like. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. But generally, children describe the relationship and write the history of what their childhood was like. Some of you may know the name Aaron Walsh. He was instrumental in us moving here almost 20 years ago. And Aaron was a young guy. You knew Aaron. Aaron was young. Aaron was a little rough around the edges in the early days, wasn't he? Just a little, little rough. He had married Christy by the time we had, we had met him, so some of the edges were taken off. But they had, uh, they had no children. Uh, they were newly married, um, and they just had a little dachshund that was, at the very least, oppressed by the enemy and perhaps possessed because when you were over at Aaron and and Christy's house the dog would stay in the back room would only come out of the room to bite somebody and go back like that was the only time you ever saw the dog and I was in a meeting in in a back room one time Aaron was supposed to be there and Aaron didn't come and he comes in like 15 minutes late which was not characteristic of him and his his explanation of why he was late for the meeting is like I'm so sorry we were just up all night with the dog he's like man having a dog is like having a child I'm like, stop, stop. Aaron, never say that again. I know you believe that right now, but this is why you should never say that again. That dog will never write a book about what kind of parents you were. Under, you know, good, bad, whatever, at the end of the day, the dog goes away, but children describe and term what your kids right now are taking notes. And they will write the book when you are long gone about what home was like. Jesus describes the relationship between him and the Father. And it's so interesting the way that he does it. We learn more about God as a father because of the words of Jesus, the son. We get a clearer look at how they interacted because Jesus spoke about it all the time. He preached about it. He told his disciples about it. Nowhere in scripture did he paint a clearer picture of the father-son relationship than he does in John 17. And this is what we learn from John 17 as he talks about his father. We learn that generational destinies do not compete. They benefit one another. Because the enemy understands the power of this, He tries to thwart us by getting us to believe that we're in competition with one another 
when we're not. And it's displayed in comical, subtle ways, like the daughter who can never quite make the Thanksgiving turkey as good as mom made it. Or the son and father who wrestle and the father really never lets him win. Remember wrestling with my boys when they were even, even into their teenage years. Jackson wanted to wrestle with me. Jackson's bigger than I am. And he was wearing a tie. I don't know why, but he's wearing a tie. And we start to wrestle. And I remember reaching out and grabbing the tie and yanking him down. And, getting, and when it's over, he's like, you grabbed me by the tie. I'm like, here's the story. One day you will win. I can only lose one time. And it's over. So I will do whatever I can. But there's this competition thing between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, and it's cute, but it's deeper than that. There is a comparison that goes on between fathers and sons and daughters and mothers that moves beyond friendly competition into ungodliness. Because fathers and mothers are afraid to celebrate the wins of their children. Earlier this week, I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review talking about management and leadership, and it talked about succession in the business world where there's a family business. The article just said it outright. It said the most difficult business to manage and lead is a family business. A colossal business that is not a family business is easier to run than a moderate-sized one that's a family business. And here are a couple things the article said that are difficult about succession in the business world from one generation. Listen to why it says it's hard to pass a business down to a son or a daughter. It says the entrepreneur, the mother or father, characteristically has unresolved conflicts with his father. He's uncomfortable when being supervised and he starts his own business both to outdo his father and escape the authority and rivalry of more powerful figures. In other words, the patriarch of the business who is the problem had problems with his own patriarch. And that's one of the reasons many of them launch off. That's why we've got to get this right as fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. We've got to follow the pattern of God the Father and Jesus the Son because if we don't get it straightened out, we just pass it down. And our children who have their own hang-ups inherit ours as well. God the Father was not threatened by the popularity or the ability of Jesus the Son. He was exhilarated by it. He celebrated what the Son was about to do. Moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, the wins of the next generation are our wins. They're not our competition. Learn to fight for their wins. Some of you, you're like, what are you talking? I'm telling you, when your kids begin to achieve things, There's something within you that goes, I could have done that. They had advantages I didn't have. Can you just celebrate? Just bless that. Their wins are your wins. But so many of us are so caught up in insecurity that we're afraid to celebrate the wins of our children, and so it always feels like competition. The next thing that article mentioned was the idea that an entrepreneur's business is simultaneously his baby and his mistress. Says that guy who starts that business, obviously, oftentimes it's like a whole other relationship to him. A maladjusted, ungodly earthly father finds twisted fulfillment in his job. 
What you are called to put your hand to do can be noble and good, but when you start to look at it as your source of fulfillment, your family suffers. I was at a job interview years ago, and uh, you know, there's, there's certain just questions you should see coming because everybody asks them and nobody asks why. But uh, this was, it was an office job, it was an administrative job, and the person asked me, what are your passions? And I know what she's asking me. She wants me to tell her that my passions are and they want to line up with this job that they have. And I realized at this point, I am in nowhere remotely qualified for this job. I'm not getting this job. I know this. She doesn't know this yet. I know this. But I remember looking at her and saying, just in a moment of brutal honesty, my passions are feeding my family. She said, what? I said, I don't think the guy in China working in the rice paddy has a passion for rice. I think that's just his job. I think that's just what he does so he can be who he wants to be. And if I come to work for you, I'll do a hard, I'll, I'll work hard, I'll do my best job, but my passion is this is not it. Didn't get the job, knew I wasn't gonna get the job. Actually, but that person became a friend, told me later, I've never thought about that any differently. You're right, you're right. Dads. It's okay to love your job. It's okay to find fulfillment in it. Don't find identity. Because when you find identity in it, you suddenly are at odds with your kids because they are competing for your attention for that baby and mistress that you have at the office. A father or mother who has prioritized a career or a skill will find themselves choosing that career or skill and emotionally damaging the very kids the Lord gave them to raise. God was so focused on his love for Jesus that Jesus felt the empowerment to love others and use his father's love as a template. Like he was so in favor of Jesus that Jesus felt encouraged and said, I can be exactly who he's invited me to be because we're not in competition. And Jesus felt so endorsed and cared for by God, he was able to go into all the world and say, hey, this is how it's done. You love like my father loves. He, I'm, I'm happy holding him up as an example. I never felt like we were competing. And he actually prays in John 17, 22 and 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's praying to his father and he says, dad, I want you to look at them like you look at me. And I want them to look at you like I look at you. No competition. Just clear roles. The last thing that that article said that caught my eye was, for the, the entrepreneur, the business is essentially an extension of himself, a medium for his personal gratification and achievement above all. And if he is concerned about what happens to his business after he passes it on, that concern usually takes the form of thinking of the kind of monument he will leave. It says this entrepreneur who is not thinking of his children, even as he's passing it on, is thinking about himself. That's why, honestly, so many family businesses struggle at the point of succession. Because the father or mother who runs the business can't afford to share the glory with their son or daughter, or the son tries to grab the glory prematurely 
that belongs to the Father, and it's competition. There's an ungodly competition between generations that sets us up to be adversaries rather than advantages to one another. Jesus described an entirely different reality with his Father. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you. He's like, it's time. I'm going to shine a light on you, Father, and I know you're going to shine a light on me. Jesus had the understanding when he received the necessary blessing from his Father and operated in faithfulness, he became a blessing to his Father. Moms and dads, when you bless your children and they mature, they will be a blessing to you. You want to fight with your children? They will fight with you for the rest of your life. Find a way to bless. Jesus had the understanding that he had received that necessary blessing and he could give it away as well. Even Jesus knew the role he was playing as a son put him in a unique position. He was there to do the will of his father and he had great admiration for who his father was. He understood that authority flows from father to son and the son has a duty to acknowledge it. There's a tendency among sons and daughters to say they have made their own way. Isn't there? You ever see these articles, you know, 20 most influential 20-year-olds of the city or 40 most influential under 40? You know, eventually it gets up to like the 105 most influential 105-year-olds. I'm shooting for that one because pretty much if you're still 105, you get on the list. You know, it's easy. But there's this idea of uh, making it on your own. I recently read of a 25-year-old named Austin Russell who is declared the world's youngest self-made billionaire. He's formed a company that's heavily invested in self-driving cars. And I read the article about him, I realized he dropped out of Stanford. Do you understand the advantages you had, Austin, that allowed you to drop out of Stanford? Just to get into Stanford. It's $80,000 a year. So to be able to walk away from that, Austin, let's not pretend that they found you on the street. You had some advantages. There's an idea among sons and daughters they can make it without mom and dad. And that idea is based in pride. Even Jesus recognized that what he had came through his father. He said, the authority I have, the blessings I have came from someone else. John 17, 2 says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. Jesus, the son, acknowledged that he was able to accomplish what he accomplished under the authority of the father. Now, he had a perfect father. None of you did. But you might have had a father that was the best father he knew how to be. My father wasn't perfect but he played the best hand with the cards that he had. If he gave you his best, you can go further than he did. Some of you feel broken. You're like, I don't know what I can give my kids. You give your kids your best and they can go further than you did with the best that you give them. A godly father shares in the victories that his kids have. 
If the hearts of the fathers are going to turn to the children and the hearts of the children are going to turn to fathers, moms and dads need to be involved in their children's victories and they also need to share their own victories with their kids and give them a sense of what it feels like to win. God himself included Jesus in tasting his own successes. Jesus had an understanding of what God the Father being glorified meant. In verse 3, says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is allowed by God to write himself into the story and say, God, we're doing this together. Most kids don't know that. Mom goes off to work, dad goes off to work, they have their successes, and the child never enters into it in any significant way. And so when the child goes to be a success, they go a completely different route, and it never feels like it's shared. I saw a major pop icon being interviewed the other day. And uh, he's late in his career. He has adult children now. And they asked him, what do your kids think of your successes? And I remember him saying, no child is very happy about his parents' success. He said, no child wants to see an arena of 50,000 people cheering their parents. That feels weird. See, children want to see 50,000 people booing their parents. And everybody laughed, and I thought, that's tragic. That's heartbreaking. I mean, he, he meant it to be funny, but really it's sad. Because the design of God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, is that the two share in one another's successes. And that when the Father looks good, Jesus says, oh, that makes me look good. And when Jesus looks good, God says, oh, that makes me look good. Learn to share your own successes with your kids so that they'll in turn share yours, theirs with you. I want to ask if Jenna would, would come and just jump on the keys real quick. And just, just use some keys this evening or this afternoon. A godly son or daughter finds fulfillment in obedience to the words of the Father. John 17, 4 and 5, the son says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He says, I glorified you because I was obedient to you. And when I was obedient to you, I came into my own. And I've got everything that I need in obedience to the Father including joy. The lack of joy in many believers' lives is directly connected to their lack of obedience to a joyful father. This morning, God the Father looks at you with the kind of love that he had for Jesus the Son. We talked this morning about some of the words that were spoken over Jesus, and you are aching to have had those words spoken over you by somebody. God the Father speaks them over you. And in your obedience to him, you experience such peace and fulfillment and joy. And it's almost as if, it's not almost, it actually is that you can't outpace him in obedience. The more radically you obey him, the more joy comes your way. This Christmas, 
And let me encourage you to consider your spot in life as a, both as a father or a mother and as a son or a daughter. Some of you are having kids, you're I'm thinking about how I speak about my kids in a different way. Some of you, you don't have kids yet, you're thinking, oh, I need to hear things from a father that I haven't heard. God the Father is not in competition with you. He wants to bless you this morning. I want to ask you to stand for a moment. Jenna, if you would just lead us in worship for a moment. As we do, those of you that are wrestling with obedience to whatever it is you're wrestling with, let me encourage you, a radical yes leads to radical joy as you come into relationship with God the Father in the way you were meant to. father-son relationship. We would celebrate our own children. We would call out their destinies. That we would lean into the love of a father who calls it out in us. We would walk in obedience. We would know great, great joy. Some of you never heard words of blessing from your father. It just didn't happen. Maybe might have been a harsh man, might have been just a detached man. But when you hear the words that God spoke over Jesus, it's like a foreign language to you. It's, got, it's, it's never rested on your heart. I just want to stand instead of your father 
and speak over you, you have what it takes. With Jesus within you, you are enough. There is no lack. There is no reason to live under a cloud. There's no overwhelming circumstance that you are not able to stand and be faithful in. You have what it takes to walk in strength because God the Father sees you through the lens of his son Jesus and he says you have what it takes. You're not lacking. You're not missing anything. You can even be what you never saw. Some of you have been afraid about your own parenting because you have no grid to walk it out from. And the Lord says, I will teach you. I'll be the father you didn't have. Father God, we ask that you would rest on us with the spirit of a father. And that we would glean from this relationship in the word that you have with your son and we would walk it out in obedience and we would feel the smile of the Father on us. We love you, God. We are so grateful that you're a good Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day. God bless you.